How y'all doing today? This is Quindell Evans. Thank you for listening to the Blue Poetry Podcast. I like to read every day, and I like to take you on that journey of reading with me. So we're going to continue our reading of Blind Spots by Christian De Quincey, 21 Reasons to Think Before You Talk. And we left off in chapter 14, a chapter called Fate or Free Will, Fate or Free Will, where we're deciding or debating or getting an understanding of whether life is pretty much dominated by fate or free will. What do you have? Fate or free will? There's things in your life, is they controlled by your fate? Like things that are meant to happen? Or do you have free will? You know, determinism. And we left off, but we left off at a spot where two philosophers, the author and another philosopher or scientist, were debating and discussing this topic. So, here we go. A self that chooses? Whether biologically determined by insentient neurons to psychologically determined by sentient neurons, the experience of making choices of our own volition still seems very real. We live our lives on the assumption that we are making decisions of our own free will and directing our own future. It is virtually impossible not to. Implicit in the notion of choice is the existence of a chooser, an independent self that is an active agent in the process. This too fits with our experience. There seems to be an eye that perceives the world, making assessments and decisions and making its own choices. This eye feels it has chosen the dish from the menu. That was Peter Russell speaking, and now here's Christian De Quincey. Yes, and here we meet the $64 trillion question at the heart of most, if not all, psycho-spiritual traditions. Who chooses? Peter Russell. The experience of an individual self is so intrinsic to our lives that we seldom doubt its veracity. But does it really exist in its own right? Two lines of research suggest not. On one hand, neuroscientists find no evidence of an individual self located nowhere, located somewhere in the brain. Instead, they propose that we call I, that what we call I is a mental construct derived from bodily experience. Christian De Quincey. Of course, it's no surprise that neuroscientists find no evidence for self. How could they? Given their scientific method rooted in sensory empiricism, they will never find a self or any form of consciousness because the self is subjective, non-physical entity. Furthermore, when scientists claim that the I is nothing but a mental construct, I have to ask, where did that mental construct of bodily experience come from? Neither mind nor experience can be accounted for in neuroscience. Peter Russell, well, putting that aside for now, according to neuroscience, we draw a distinction between me and not me, and then create a sense of self for the me part. From a biological point of view, this distinction is most valuable. Taking care of the needs of this self is taking care of our physical needs. We seek whatever promotes our well-being and avoid whatever threatens it. Christian De Quincey, this makes sense. Or do I make a distinction between I and me? The I corresponds with the sense of self, the subjective feeling of what it is to be this sentient being. While me corresponds with our ego, which identifies with our objective body, Unlike spiritual traditions that attempt to get rid of the ego, I acknowledge this reality 
an important role it plays in our lives. The ego has evolved to guide and protect me, this body, from the vagaries of an unpredictable and often dangerous world. I view me, the ego, as the objectification of the subjective, witnessing I. Neither me nor I falls within the scope of science. Peter Russell. The second very different line of research involves the exploration of subjective experience. People who have delved into the nature of the actual experience of self have discovered that the more closely they examine this sense of I, the more it seems to dissolve. <clears throat> Time and again they find that there is no independent self. There are thoughts of I, but no I that is thinking them. They find that what we take to be a sense of an omnipresent I is simply consciousness itself. There's no separate experience. There is simply a quality of being, sense of presence, and awareness that is always there, whatever our experience. They conclude that what we experience to be an independent self is a construct in the mind. Very real in its appearance, but of no intrinsic substance. It, like the choices it appears to make, is a consequence of processes in the brain. It has no free will of its own. Question to Quincy. This brings us back to the question. Who chooses? And I say ultimately, the cosmos chooses. Through what I have referred to as the great cosmic democracy. So even though me or any individual I might not choose, I still think that consciousness per se comes with the power of choice built in, as it were. I think we have good reasons for saying that choice is an ontological necessity. Briefly, at every moment, every actual thing or event is necessarily surrounded by a cloud of possibilities or options. Call them quantum potentials if you like. We know from quantum physics that the range of possibilities collapses into an actual event in the next moment only in the presence of an observer, for example, consciousness. For anything new to ever happen, something has to choose which option or possibility to collapse. And because new things happen all the time, even if it's just a new moment, it follows that it follows that choice is inevitable, inevitable. One other possibility, though, and from previous conversations, I suspect this might be how you view it, is that events just happen in consciousness without any choice or agency directing the process. We can think of these events as ripples in awareness, determined or caused by consciousness itself as it engages in awareness. We might even call everything that happens ripples of awareness. In short, in the process of awareness, Consciousness generates ripples that in turn becomes objects of the aware of consciousness. Complementary perspectives. Peter Russell. Nevertheless, and this is critical for resolving the paradox in our everyday state of consciousness, the sense of self is very real. It is who we are. Although this I may be part of the brain's model of reality, it is nevertheless intimately involved in making decisions, weighing up pros and cons, coming to conclusions choosing what to do and, and when to do it. Christian De Quincey, for a brain to create a model, it will also have, it will also have to have a mind with, without which the brain could never have a sense of anything, including especially a sense of self or I. It's the mind component of the brain-mind complex that is responsible for the sense of I. A side note, I find it useful to distinguish between making decisions, weighing pros and cons, and making choices created essential acts. Decisions are determined. Choices are created and undetermined. In one of my books, Radical Knowing, I point out that choice is the only instant in which an effect and its own cause coincide. As a creative act, when self is 
When self as agent chooses, it is simultaneously the cause and its own effect. The very act of choosing is implicated in generating the sense of self. Peter Russell. In the state of consciousness where the self is real, we do experience ourselves making choices. And those choices are experienced as being of our own volition. Here, free will is real. On the other hand, in what we often call the liberated or fully awake state of consciousness in which one no longer identifies with the constructed sense of self, the thought of I is seen as just another experience arising in the mind. And so the experience of choosing, and so is the experience of choosing. It is all witnessed as a seamless whole unfolding before one. Christian De Quincey, agreed. In the consciousness from zombies to angels, I have a chapter on this very topic. I think, therefore, I am a God, in which I developed David Baum's idea that the ego, responsible for the sense of me as a separate individual, I, is itself nothing more than just another thought in consciousness, another example of a ripple in awareness. When I appreciated the complementary nature of these two, Peter Russell, when I appreciated the complementary nature of these two states of consciousness, one focused on the I and the other engaged in simply awareness, or so, or as we have previously discussed, where consciousness is simply ending, the paradox dissolves for me. Whether or not we experience free will depends on the state from which we experience, which we are experiencing the world. Christian De Quincey. I think our two quite different lines of thinking converge here. What you call two states of consciousness, I describe in terms of two levels of being the voting sentient organism in a great cosmic democracy. And one of your two states, consciousness identifies with the voting self. In the other mystical state, it identifies with the all. I think we share the same, or at least a similar insight. Peter Russell, in one state of consciousness, there is free will, and the other has no reality. Christian De Quincey, ah, we diverge again. I wouldn't say that choice per se dissolves in the mystical state. Even the creative ultimate has to choose, otherwise nothing new would ever happen. I'm saying that even at the ultimate level, possibilities still exist. That means differentiation exists. Now, of course, if we go with the insights of non-dual teaching, which I know you align with, such differentiations dissolve. However, to be consistent, the non-dual perspective must also include the opposite, where the differentiations don't dissolve. So the possibilities both exist and don't exist simultaneously and low. The paradox returns full force. The difficulty, of course, with the non-dual perspective is that it cannot be a perspective. It cannot be spoken about without immediately falling into contradictions. Hence, silence. Peter Russell, as I view the conundrum through the lens of two states of consciousness, I saw that free will and determinism are no longer paradoxical in the, state, in the sense of being mutually exclusive. Both are correct, depending upon the consciousness from which they are considered. The paradox appears only when we consider both sides. Yo, what you doing? The, oh my gosh, you think I'm gonna, oh my gosh. However, to be consistent, the non-dual perspective must also include the opposite, where the differentiations don't dissolve. So the possibilities both exist and don't exist simultaneously. And lo, the paradox return full force. The difficulty, of course, with the non-dual perspective 
is that it cannot be a perspective and it cannot be spoken about without immediately falling into con contradictions. Hence, silence. Peter Russell, as I viewed the conundrum through the lens of two states of consciousness, I saw that free will and determinism are no longer paradoxical in the sense of being mutually exclusive. Both are correct, depending upon the consciousness from which they are considered. The paradox only appears when we consider both sides from the same state of consciousness. That is, the everyday waking state. I like to illustrate this with Hamlet pondering the question, to be or not to be. The character in the play is making a choice, and if we have not seen the play before, we may wonder which way will he choose. This is the thrill of the play, to be engaged in it, moved by it, absorbed in its reality with all its twists and turns. However, we also know that how the play unfolds was determined long ago by William Shakespeare. So we have two complementary ways of viewing the play. At times you may choose to live fully in the drama, other times you may step back to admire his creative genius. Christian De Quincey. In this example, of course, the drama is Maya, illusory, a will or <laughs> a will free of ego. Peter Russell. So also in life, we can't be engaged in the drama. We can be engaged in the drama, experiencing free will, making choices that affect our futures. Or we can step back and be a witness to this amazing play of life unfolding before us. Both are true within their respective frameworks. Although in a liberated state of mind, there may be no free will in the sense in which we normally think of it. There is instead a newfound freedom far more fulfilling and enriching than the freedom of choice to which we claim. Christian De Quincey, I like that. And so another aspect of the paradox, in the transcendence of surrender, we choose to let go of choosing. Peter Russell, the will of the individual self is focused on survival. Its foundation is the survival of the organism, fulfilling our bodily needs, avoiding danger or anything that threatens our well-being. In other words, keeping us alive and well, sending off the inevitability of death as long as possible. Added to this are various psychological and social needs. We want to feel safe and secure, to feel stimulated and fulfilled, to be respected and appreciated. We believe that if we can just get the world to be the way we want it, and here the world includes other people, then we will be happy. In a liberated state, the ego no longer drives our thinking and behavior. When it drops away, we discover that the ease and safety we have been seeking are already there. They are qualities of our true nature. But is the nature of the ego to plan and worry, to seek the things it wants, to avoid the things it doesn't want? In so doing, it creates tension and resistance, which veils our true nature, hiding from us the very peace of mind we are seeking. The life-changing discovery of the liberated mind is that it is already at peace. Nothing needs to be done. Nothing needs to happen. Nothing needs to change in order to experience peace. There may still be much to do in the world, helping others, resolving injustices, taking care of our environment, and so forth. But we are free from dictates of the ego. We are free to respond according to our needs of the situation at hand, rather than what the ego wants. Here, our will is truly free. At this point, Pete and I settled into silence, ending our conversation. So who chooses? In one of your lectures, you spoke about consciousness being able to direct the flow of events through choice and free will. But we don't have a choice over consciousness, right? 
If I understood you correctly, the only choice we have is to go with or against the flow of events, to align our consciousness with the flow. So how then can choices make a difference in the world? I'm not sure what you mean by not having a choice over consciousness. True, we don't have a choice in whether we have consciousness. It just comes with the package of being a sentient being. However, choice is an essential ingredient of consciousness. Wherever there is consciousness, there is an ability to choose. And this involves a lot more than merely aligning with the flow of events or not. Whenever consciousness is presented with a range of options, we can choose among those options, usually selecting one aligned with our aims, goals, or intentions. If this were not the case, if consciousness could choose only to go with the flow, that would make it an epiphenomenon without any causal potency. So I'm saying that consciousness and every sentient being has the power to choose among available options. And in doing so, it casually impacts the flow of events, from collapsing quantum waves to sending rockets to other planets to affecting the environment. Our choices do make a difference. Blind spot. I wonder if you had in mind what I had said about intention. Whenever we express an intention, it is ultimately not our intention that manifests. Rather, it is the cosmic intention, or whatever you wish to call the purposeful aim of the creative ultimate. You could think of it this way. Cosmic intention expresses itself through the innumerable nose of consciousness, each sentient being. And only when the localized intention of an individual is aligned with the greater cosmic intention do intentions become manifest. We as individuals have choice about where and how we direct our attention and form intentions. However, a great deal of psycho-spiritual practice focuses on developing awareness of the difference between desires formed by the ego, which tend to have self-serving goals and intentions that are expressed through the individual self and serve a greater good. The spiritual cone, who chooses, directs our awareness to this. Ego desires or personal intentions are less likely to align with the transpersonal intentions of the creator ultimate because they are driven by the illusion of separateness, that our egos are isolated individuals and and are our true identity. I'm saying that when intentions are aligned with and expressed on behalf of the good of the whole, they are most likely to manifest. Here's a question I ask ourselves many times a day. When I make a choice, is it in service to my ego or is it a contribution to the well-being of the whole? Good and God and ego. I once heard the Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith describe the ego as edging God out. How does that tie in with your views of ego as presented in your work? It's a cute phrase, if by God he means ultimate reality, then of course it's impossible to edge out reality. The ego is real. It is a real part of reality. However, the ego makes a huge mistake when it believes it is the source and creator of itself. I think, I like to think of it this way. Reality, the creative ultimate, converges through the cosmos and the multitude of points in the space and time and expresses itself through these points. You, me, and all sentient beings. Each point is like a little lens through which the creative ultimate perceives the light of itself. Blind spot. However, every experience that passes through each lens leaves a mark, a trace, a kind of existential scratch on the lens. These scratches are our thoughts, memories, and beliefs. The, The contents of consciousness. The ego is constructed out of these scratches. What happens is that we as egos focus on these scratches and identify with them. We think that reality is those scratches. We make up stories about ourselves and the world and we confuse our stories for realities. We believe our beliefs. 
All psycho-spiritual practice, it seems to me, is about learning to see through those ego scratches and to wake up to the realization that they are all just likely stories. Before ending this chapter, I want to highlight another frequently overlooked blind spot. We are all gods, blind spot. How often do you hear people say something like, I have very few choices. I hear it all the time. But that is hardly ever the case. Except if they are about to die. What they mean to say is, I have very few options. At any moment, we always have a range of options available. But at any moment, we have only a single choice. I find it helpful then to distinguish between choices, options, and the act of selecting. Depth alert. Choice is an unconstrained, creative, extensive act of selecting from available options. It is necessarily unconstrained and free. Otherwise, it would be determined and therefore would not be choice at all. Options are available, circumstances and possibilities, the array of actualities and possibilities available to us. Options are available circumstances and possibility. The array of actualities and possibilities available to us. At every moment, we find ourselves in an ongoing stream of actual experiences. We cannot change current circumstances or the range of possibilities that accompany them. In short, we have no control over options once they are, pre- once they are present. They are given. All we can do is select among them by making a choice. Our options are given to us by the world around us, shaped by the entire history of the universe. They simply are what they are, and we must accept them as they are, if we want to remain sane and survive. If that were the end of the story, however, we would be nothing, excuse me, we would be nothing more than mute machines, biological robots compelled to follow the unfolding of the forces of nature. We're no say in the matter, but that's not the way it is. We do have a say. We do get to vote. We can choose. We can choose to focus attention on specific circumstances, and more, infor- more important, we can focus awareness on and then choose from available possibilities. In doing so, our choices contribute to the unfolding of the actual circumstances in the next moment. Our choices make a difference. However, for our choices to not only make a difference, but to make a difference, that makes a difference. They must be aligned with the general overall pattern of choices made by the great cosmic democracy. The point to note is this. Circumstances, including other people, can and do constrain or limit available options. But nothing can limit or constrain our choices, even in the most constrained circumstances imaginable. For example, in prison and chained up in solitary confinement, we still have the choice to accept or resist our circumstances. Others can and do limit our options, but they can never take away our choice, unless, of course, they take away our life and consciousness. Choice is not only unconstrained, it is also creative, literally. It is the expression of the divine spark within each of us.
And when we exercise choice, it creates a new actuality or manifestation from the combination of present circumstances and possibilities, our available options always determined by others. Selection is what happens once we make a choice. If it involves behavior, then selection is a physical act of take on one object or course of action rather than any other. If selection does not involve a physical act or precede a physical act, then it means we make a commitment to some way of being or thinking or to act in a specific way at some future time. To give an example, let's say you want to go to a movie and you check the listing to see what's currently playing. Those are your options. And let's say all the films turn out to be blockbuster, blow em up dramas full of special effects, spectacle and violence, and you don't like that. You might be tempted to say, I don't have any choices. When in fact what you mean is, I don't like any of the available options. While that might be true, whatever movies are showing, you can always choose or not to select an option. The best of a bad bunch. Whenever you say, I don't have any choices, you disempower yourself, even when your options are severely restricted. You always have a choice. At the very least, you can always choose to accept or reject the reality you find yourself in. Never a good idea to fight reality, though. The universe is much bigger and more powerful than you are. Blind spot. We can always make a choice. Circumstances might constrain our options, but no one can take away our ability to choose. Choice is an expression of the creative spark within each of us, and it is always free and creative, never determined by circumstances. If choice were determined, it wouldn't be choice. It would be decisions. Decisions are determined by weighing up the pros and cons of our circumstances. When we exercise choice, we select a new or alternative possibility, and because we intentionally create something actual from a set of possibilities, we become light gods. In other words, Choice expresses the power of intention to manifest a new reality. Bumper sticker. Options constrains. Choice create. Options are given. Choices are created. When we experience this difference and realize that we always have choice, we realize that indeed we are gods. Chapter 16. Consciousness rules. It's all in the mind. Consciousness is everything. Some time ago, I played philosophical ping pong with a colleague who had sent me a link to an article. Does our DNA demonstrate intelligent design? Of course, the answer is yes, but equally, of course, not in the way of fundamentalists believe. See chapter 14, Evolution by Design. So last chapter is actually chapter 15. We're on chapter 16 now. The article explores the possibility that some alien intelligence tweaked our ancestors' genes. What were they thinking? Although that's plausible, it's not what caught my attention. My colleague made the following comment, and that set us off on a metaphysical detour. He complained, this article doesn't even consider the possibility that physical reality was created out of the non-physical. I replied, well, for very good reasons. There simply is no way to even conceive how that would be possible. Getting matter or energy, anything physical, out of purely non-physical ingredients would be just as inexplicable as the mainstream scientific claim that non-physical, that, that non-physical mind or consciousness emerges from purely physical ingredients in the brain. In each case, an, an inexplicable ontological leap would be required. No free lunches. To repeat a key theme throughout the book, you simply can't get something from nothing. Or to be more precise in this case, you can't get one type of reality, matter, from an entirely different kind of reality, pure mind. 
If your base reality contains only non-physical ingredients, no amount of mental gymnastics or intentionality could ever produce real physical matter. That would require an inexplicable, miraculous, ontological jump. And that's a non-starter. No one can even begin to explain how that might be possible. Getting real matter or energy from pure mind or consciousness is no more likely than getting real mind from mindless matter. In short, no free ontological lunches. Bear with me. All of this preamble, preamble relates to the idea of some alien intelligence tweaking the genetic structure of species on Earth, the original point of his email. Like us, alien would also have to be some kind of embodied consciousness, a sentient embodied being. This allows for the possibility of very different kinds of embodiment, for example, so-called subtle or actual bodies. But a sentient being without embodiment of some kind would be incapable of ever doing anything. Doing requires energy, and energy requires physical embodiment. So at the very least, we can be sure that any alien intelligence would be an embodied intelligence and could not have messed about with, ter with terrestrial genes from some idolized, fictional, disembodied consciousness. He disagreed. It seems to me, he said, that science is discovering that the primary material is not matter, nor energy, which of course is more or less the same thing, but consciousness. I once had an experience. It, I once had an experience. It lasted only seconds, almost certainly no more than a minute, in which I popped into another reality that was more real than the one we normally experience. No way I can defend that statement, let alone demonstrate it. But even though the source of the knowing is incommunicable, is incommunicable, the knowing remains. No way I can defend the statement, let alone demonstrate it. But even though the source of the knowing is incommunicable, the knowing remains. This material reality is somehow projected from an underlying non-physical reality. That's what he said. Blind spot. Having spent a career studying the mind-matter, consciousness-energy relationship, it is abundantly clear to me that no one can even begin to explain how mindless matter could produce mind, the standard science view, or how pure consciousness could ever produce real matter or energy, an idolist view. I'm quite confident that my colleague is no exception. That is, he cannot explain how an ontological jump could occur from purely non-physical reality to one that includes real physical stuff. Besides, I'd be really interested to know which science has discovered that the primary material is not matter, energy, but consciousness. Because consciousness is non-physical and therefore not amenable to sensory detection which is the basis of all science. Science has absolutely nothing at all to say about consciousness, never mind declaring that the primary material is consciousness, an obviously self-contradictory statement. To even think of consciousness as some kind of stuff or material is to reveal a profound lack of understanding about the nature of consciousness. Consciousness is what knows. It is not stuff. Consciousness knows, feels, or is aware of matter or energy, but it is not itself matter or energy. Naturally, I have nothing to say about his personal experience other than to urge caution in how he and others interpret their experiences. For example, the interpretation that physical reality is somehow a projection of some underlying non-physical reality immediately raises questions, but it's unclear which version of idolism he adopts. One, the Maya hypothesis that matter-energy is just an illusion created in consciousness, or two, the notion that real matter or energy emanates from pure consciousness. He seems to flip back and forth between these incompatible views of the mind-matter relationship. If, however, he adopts the Maya view, 
then I am quite certain that every day, every hour, every minute he is engaged in a performative contradiction. He necessarily lives and performs in the world in ways that clearly contradict the claim that matter is just an illusion. He doesn't walk through walls, avoids trucks on the freeway, doesn't eat or drink poisons, wears clothes, lives in a house, and so forth. In other words, he treats the physical world as, a, as real even while claiming it is unreal. He has no other option if he wishes to survive and remain sane. Option two, real matter and energy emanates from pure consciousness, raises the problem of an, of an inexplicable ontological jump and, and corresponding explanatory gap, as I mentioned above. Just how does non-physical consciousness produce real physical matter or energy? Either way, both forms of idolism run into inseparable problems, just as standard scientific materialism does with this unsupportable claim that mind emerges from mindless brain matter, or as dualism does when it claims that mind and body are, are separable yet somehow interact. He responded that quantum physics has been driven, kicking, and screaming to the conclusion that consciousness is primary and creates the physical world. He cited a recent book, Irreducible Mind, from a research group at the Esalen Institute in California as a source of support. As it happens, I'm quite familiar with Irreducible Mind because I was involved in that research project in its early days. I am also no stranger to the conundrum in quantum physics regarding the role of the observer in collapsing the probability wave function. It is true, at least in the standard Copenhagen interpretation, that for quantum probabilities to collapse into an actual physical event, an observer must be part of the quantum system. Furthermore, any observer must be a conscious observer. Otherwise, the idea of observer is meaningless. In short, somehow consciousness collapses the quantum wave function. This somehow is a big mystery in science, and yet physicists must acknowledge it because otherwise the equations don't work out. But they haven't the foggiest idea either how non-physical consciousness impacts the physical system, even at the quantum level, or of course just what consciousness is, or how it fits into their cosmology. For the first time in our 400 years since Descartes' infamous mind-body split, scientists have had to acknowledge the presence of consciousness as a decisive factor in science. They just don't know what to do about that. But none of this means or even suggests that consciousness is the primary material for the physical world to come into being. That is an unfortunate example of misguided and misinformed pop science eagerly embraced by wishful thinking idolists. Blind spot. Both physical and non-physical ingredients, energy and consciousness, need to present for the world to come into being. A world that consists of embodied sentient beings, neither consciousness alone, the idolist view, nor matter or energy alone, the materialist view, can account for the actual world as we experience it. Every conscious observer is always an embodied conscious observer. Minds without bodies are fictions. The opposite is also true. He objected to my statement, minds without bodies are fictions, and said, I don't see how you can possibly prove that assertion. He's right, I can't, and wouldn't want to, even if I could. The old idea of proof is, is just not empirically available. Science never actually proves anything. The best it can do is confirm or disconfirm some hypotheses. For example, all swans are white. But no amount of positive confirmation of white swans 
can ever remove the possibility that the very next observation will reveal a swan of a different color. You might observe a million white swans, but all it takes is one black swan to disprove the hypothesis that all swans are white. I'm not interested in proof, but I am interested in conceptual coherence and in coming up with the most lively explanations for what we experience. I know of no instance of any mind floating free, independent of a body. If he or you or anyone else is attracted to the idea of minds that could exist free of embodiment, I'd like to know why. What use would a disembodied mind be to itself or anything else? Without a body energy, it could never do anything. The best a disembodied mind could do would be to generate intentions, but it could never act on them. Action and manifestation require energy. Minds without bodies are impotent. Bodies without minds are blind. The actual world requires both consciousness, non-physical and energy physical. Neither can be neither can be reduced to the other or arise from the other. No ontological free lunches. That'll do it for our reading for today. I appreciate you guys for listening. We're on chapter 16 right now called Consciousness Rules of the Book Blind Spots by Christian De Quincey. It's a very deep or complex um, reading, but I like to challenge myself and read things that can allow me to think outside the box, you know, um, and see different perspectives. You know, I like to read every day, and sometimes I read something simple, sometimes I read something complex, but while reading these complex things, there's always some simple things that that are pointed out to me, you know, that I that I am drawn to. It's... You know, and, and while reading it, I always begin to understand it a little more and a little more. This is a book I would definitely want to read again. I like to read books twice. Some books, you know, I might have to read once a year in order to stay refreshed on what's inside, you know. Because I feel like some books are very important and can allow you to, you know, to have a great, have you know, to sharpen your perspective of life and how to apply yourself. You know, reading is fundamental, you know. It's fun to the mental. So, like, definitely, you know, allow your mentality to have some fun. You know, I appreciate you guys for reading with me. Let me know what you think about this this book, you know. And if there's any other books you would like for me to read, please comment. Let me know what you feel about this podcast. My Instagram is Blue Poetry. That's three words. The word blue, the word poet, the word tree. You know, my email is bluepoetry at gmail.com. Email me any questions, comments. And um, yeah, my website is bluepoetry.com. Peace and love, y'all. Thank you.